Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're always thankful for the opportunity to come back again on Sunday to worship God in spirit and in truth. If you're visiting, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're thankful for the number of visitors that we have from week to week. We usually have quite a few visitors for actually both services on Sunday. And for that, we're grateful. It may be that, it may be that you're looking for a church home and we want to extend to you the invitation to look the work over here. I know that we would be happy to have you join hands with us. The elders, they're more than happy to meet with you, to answer any questions that you might have, to find your niche in this congregation and to help us as we strive to expand the borders of the kingdom. I want to begin tonight by just saying that I appreciate those of you that come back regularly on Sunday evening and Wednesday night. And I really, I really appreciate our young folks that come on a regular basis. And what a great example you set for all of us. I was talking to Jared this past week, and not just Jared, but another friend of mine who is a preacher. And one of the things that I wrestle with from time to time is how do you get everybody on the same page, spiritually speaking? I understand that people within the context of a congregation are at different levels of maturity in their spiritual lives. But to have everybody on the same page, working toward the same goal, that's something that I think about quite frequently. And I want you to look around tonight. There are folks that ought to be here that sadly are not here. And unfortunately for some, it is a pattern. When I ask the question, where would God want us to be on Sunday night? The only response I know is he'd want us to be in services. I know that the elders of this church want all of us to be present every time the doors are open. There are some that, for whatever reason, are just not where they need to be spiritually. And I said a minute ago that I think about how do you get everybody on the same page, spiritually speaking? I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but I know that there are people that you know that ought to be here, should be here, and they're not. And I want to encourage you to call them this week, to send them a note and tell them, tell them that we miss them and that they ought to be here. You know, there are no do-overs in life. We only come this way one time. And there are a lot of parents that ought to be here on Sunday night and Wednesday night. And when they're not here, guess what? Their children aren't here. It would be a tragedy to grow old and to think, you know, I missed the boat. There are some folks here, there are some parents here that are missing the boat because they don't come back. And so the reason I say that is because you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity, to reach out and to encourage these people. We all want to go to heaven, and the only way that we can get there is to collectively work together, encourage one another, and hopefully and prayerfully be there together one day. Tonight I want us to think about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the passage that Austin read just a moment ago. And what we want to talk about tonight is really somewhat of an overview of the Bible, God's redemptive plan. And what we want to do is look 
at the redemption that we enjoy through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Peter, in a very candid and concise way, talks about the redemption that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And there are three things that I would share with you in our study tonight. First of all, let's talk for a minute about the price of redemption. What did it cost Almighty God to redeem the human family? It cost Him His only Son, Jesus Christ. Not only did it cost Him His only Son, but God the Father observed from His throne in heaven His only begotten Son shedding His blood for the sins of the human family. When you think about the blood of Christ, what comes to your mind? The two things that come to my mind, the first has to do with the fact that his blood is precious. You see, Peter said that we have been redeemed. We have been bought back. We were bought with a price, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. One of the things that is a historical fact down through the ages is that many nations and kingdoms have gone to war against one another. In our country, we have, we have had World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, etc. We our, our country has been plagued by war. And so in light of that, there are a lot of families that have literally given their most prized possession for the freedom that we enjoy in this country. Namely, they have sacrificed their children and their children's blood for the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. If my child were to die on a foreign field serving this country, let me tell you what, that would be precious blood. By the same token, if you were to lose your child on a foreign field in the heat of battle protecting the freedoms that we enjoy, that would be precious blood and rightly so. God the Father sent His Son to die for our sins. And Jesus offered His blood for us. And Peter identifies that blood as precious. God the Father gave His only begotten Son, according to John 3, verse 16. And that entailed watching Him go to the cross and die for the sins of the human family. Not only do we read about the precious blood of Jesus, but I would suggest in the second place that his blood is pure. Look again at what Peter said. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This really takes us back to the book of Exodus in chapter 12. The Old Testament 
in many ways previews the redemptive work of Christ. And there are many types in the Old Testament, figures that were a reflection of the coming of the redemptive plan of Almighty God. In Exodus chapter 12, God talks about the Passover lamb. You remember God's people had been in Egyptian bondage. And God was going to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And so he instructed them relative to the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12 at verse 5, that lamb was to be without blemish. In other words, it was to have been the very best. When God gave a sacrifice for the human family, he gave his very best. He gave his only begotten son. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that Christ gave himself without spot to God. Jesus had no sin. He became sin for us. He became our substitute for sin. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I said just a minute ago that there are a lot of types or figures in the Old Testament that preview the redemptive plan of Almighty God in the New Testament. The Passover lamb is one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul said that Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Jesus is our Passover lamb. It is through his blood that we enjoy deliverance from sin. Now along those lines, as we, as we think about the purity of the blood of Jesus, nothing could save us with the exception of God's only Son and the execution of this redemptive plan. So we talk about the nature of his blood, but then the necessity of his blood. Without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we would be lost. The Bible tells us that mankind has been separated from Almighty God. Jesus came to live, to die, to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The Old Testament foretells of the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament in a very graphic way depicts the coming of Jesus beginning in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15 and going forward. And bit by bit and piece by piece the Old Testament writers lay out the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Now we talk about those shadows and those figures. In Exodus chapter 12, you have the Passover lamb. In chapter 13, God instructed the children of Israel to sanctify unto him the firstborn. He said, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, whether man or animal, listen to him, he said, it is mine. How does that apply to us? In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn. 
The church is comprised of the firstborn to those who are registered in heaven. Really what the Hebrew writer is saying, he's taking that Old Testament text and he's tying it together. And he's saying that those of us who belong to the body of Christ, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are now individuals who belong to God. In the Old Testament, God said, sanctify to me the firstborn. Why? Because it's mine. In the New Testament, the church is comprised of people who are the firstborn. We belong to God. And we belong to God because we've obeyed the gospel and we are part of his family. Now, I said just a minute ago that we read about the necessity of the blood of Jesus. Without the shed blood of Jesus, we would be lost. Did you know that the blood of Christ is what redeems us, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18? It is what washes away our sins. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, the apostle Paul said he was, instru he was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. John said unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Now here's a question. If the blood of Christ is necessary, and the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, Hebrews 9.22, and we need the blood of Christ in order to be in a saved relationship and to belong to Almighty God, how then do we procure that blood? How do we come into contact with the blood of Jesus that redeems us from all sin? The Bible tells us. Look, if you would, at verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter said, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. The new birth is what gives us access to the blood of Christ. When we obey the truth of Almighty God, in other words, when we demonstrate faith in the Lord, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him, Hebrews chapter 11. Followed by faith is repentance. Peter instructed those on Pentecost Day to repent, Acts 2, verse 38. We confess the name of Jesus in the presence of others, Matthew 10, verse 32, or like the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, who said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, verse 37. And then we are immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Why are we immersed in a watery grave of baptism? Because that's where we contact the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood in death, John 19, 34. The only way that we can procure that blood is to go where it was shed, that is in his death. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said, Know you not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. When we're baptized into Christ, we rise to walk in newness of life. And we enjoy the washing away of sins, redemption, remission of sin, cleansing. We are members of the body of Christ. Now sometimes people say, well, can I just have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ without having any kind of affiliation with what we would call organized religion or an organized church? Well, Christ and the church are one and the same in the sense 
that they are both necessary for our redemption in Christ. The Bible says that the saved are in the church. Acts 2 verse 47. The Bible says that Christ is the Savior of the body. Ephesians 5 verse 23. So those who have been baptized into Christ, they have been added to the church, the body. They are numbered among the redeemed, the cleansed, the purified, those that enjoy a relationship with God the Father. Now, I want you to think about a second thing as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only does Peter talk about the price of redemption, but he spells out the person of redemption. The whole redemptive plan rested on one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exclusive. He is the only way for us to be saved. Listen again to what Peter said. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, and I would just point this out. A life outside of Jesus Christ, a life without the Lord, is a vain life. It is a useless life. In the sense, it lacks purpose and direction, God-given purpose and God-given direction. But in verse 19, he said, we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The Old Testament paints a portrait of Jesus. The New Testament, again, paints a portrait of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John provide us with biographical sketches of the life of Jesus. We live in a world today that in many respects is concerned about being politically correct. And there are a lot of politicians, there are a lot of people in our world today, they will not speak or say anything if they feel it is politically incorrect. Well, I understand that this is a politically incorrect statement, but it is a biblically correct statement. And the statement is this, unless Jesus is in your life, you're lost. And without Jesus, you're lost. He is exclusive to our salvation. He is the only one who can save us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, here's what Luke recorded. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I do not know how Luke could have been any plainer. It doesn't matter if you are a, a philosopher, a statesman, a politician, whatever the case may be. The bottom line is this. The Bible says Jesus is exclusive to our salvation. That's why we uphold him to a lost and dying world because he's the only one who can save. In John chapter 6, when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life that came down from heaven, John tells us that many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. 
Only Jesus has the words of life eternal. He said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can save. He's the only one who will ever be able to save. Why is that? Because that was the eternal plan of Almighty God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I mentioned a moment ago that you can look at the Old Testament. And the Old Testament writers pointed to the coming of Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, of course, the second member of the Godhead. Jesus is identified by the Apostle John as the eternal Logos, the Word who became flesh. And the, the inspired writers talk about why Jesus came into this world. Let me just cite for you some of the passages that underscore why Jesus came to earth. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Why is that? Because he is exclusive to salvation. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, again, the Bible says Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus came to what? To save. And then there is Luke in Luke 19, verse 10. Luke, the physician, writing by inspiration, said that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What's the theme? What are the New Testament writers trying to tell us? They're trying to tell us that Jesus is the exclusive means by which we're saved and that he is the one who has the ability to save us. He came to earth for one purpose, that's to save the human family. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John said that Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. In John chapter 10, at verse 10, John said that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. If you want to have an abundant life, a good life, a happy life, a purpose-filled life. Let me tell you where that life is. It's in Jesus. You can have a good life now and a better life later. I promise you that. John also said that Jesus came as the good shepherd to give his life for the sheep, John 10 at verse 11. Jesus came according to the apostle Paul to save sinners, 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 15. Jesus came to redeem us from every lawless deed, Titus chapter 2 at verse 14. Jesus came to taste death for every man, Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9. When Jesus came to earth, he came to save every member of the human family. That's inclusive of all of us. As a matter of fact, when you look at what Jesus did, when Jesus shed his blood, he had you in mind, he had me in mind, he had all of us in mind because he came to save. Now there are a lot of things that we could say about Jesus and his ministry and his work, but ultimately, Jesus came to save. He is the, he is the exclusive means of salvation. And without him, we're lost. The Bible tells us that Jesus came 
to reconcile us in the one body unto God, Ephesians 2 at verse 16. So over and over again, the scriptures talk about why Jesus came. What we ought to say is, thank God Jesus came. Thank God he came to save us personally. Thank God he came to save me. Thank God he came to save you. There's a third thing I want to call your attention to. And that has to do with the plan of redemption. Now we've talked about the price of redemption, the person of redemption. The price of redemption underscores the cost. It costs Jesus his blood. The person of redemption, that's Christ himself. But what about the plan of redemption? The conception of this great plan. There are a couple of things I want to share with you. First of all, the wisdom of Almighty God. When we begin to look at Scripture, Old and New Testaments, we find that God is the architect of the redemptive plan. Now, there are a lot of questions that we might have about the redemptive plan, and there may be a lot of things that you have in terms of questions about why did God choose this plan? And how did God come to choose this plan? All I can tell you is we're talking about God. And the Bible says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past tracing out. God is God. And God designed this plan. So first of all, God is the architect of the redemptive plan. Here's what you need to understand. This plan was in place before God ever created the world as you and I know it. That boggles my imagination. Listen to what Peter said. Here he's talking about Christ. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What Peter is saying is that God had a plan in mind to redeem the human family from sin before he ever laid the foundation of the world. Now somebody might ask the question, why would God have that plan in place? What would have prompted him to create or devise a plan of redemption? Well, Remember that God created man in his own image and likeness. That's what Moses said in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Having created us in his own image and likeness, he has endowed us with the freedom of choice. We are not robots. When God made Adam and then later made Eve, God endowed them with volition, that is, the freedom of choice. God knew that mankind, being endowed with choice or volition, would ultimately sin. I mean, that's the bottom line. God, in his eternal wisdom, knew that mankind would sin. And so he had a plan in place before the foundation of the world. 
That's why John in the Revelation in chapter 13, verse 8, can speak of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had that plan in place. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the serpent coming on the, on the scene. First, he deceived Mother Eve. And then Adam was taken in the transgression. In verse 15, what did God do at that juncture? He began unveiling, unfolding his redemptive plan. Now I said that God is the architect of this great plan. And it is a marvelous plan. But I want you to see something. I want you to turn back with me for just a minute. I, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 53 for a minute. Because I want to point something out here. And I want you to look at it with me because I want you to, to especially take note of the language that's used by the prophet. Listen, if you would, picking up in verse 3. He said, speaking of the Messiah, and this is really a picture of the suffering servant. This is a messianic chapter. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you know that Isaiah writing 750 years before Jesus ever made his entrance into this world used language that we call past tense? Why do you think that was the case? I think the only explanation is, number one, God had a plan in place. That plan involved the coming of his son Jesus. And secondly, God was certain, absolutely certain, that his son would execute that plan to a T. That's why Isaiah could write 750 years before Jesus was ever born of the Virgin Mary and speak as if his redemptive work had already been accomplished. That's the wisdom of God. God is the great architect of the redemptive plan. Now Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, God had this plan in mind. He chose to save people in Christ. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. When you stand back and think about this, this unbelievable plan of redemption and the fact that God the Father was the architect of it, it will leave you in awe. 
And then secondly, the agent of the redemptive plan. Who was the agent by which this whole plan was consummated? It was Jesus Christ. Listen now to what Peter said in verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Here we're talking about God incarnate. John said in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, the word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was manifested to execute the will of Almighty God. So, let me just call attention to some of the passages that underscore Jesus as the agent of our redemption. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My work is to do the will of Him who sent me. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I am come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 17, Jesus here is standing in the shadow of the cross. He is about to die for the sins of the human family. And he said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What work do you think he was talking about? The redemptive plan of Almighty God. He's talking about the redemptive plan that had been placed in his hands. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he bowed before God the Father. Peter, James, and John were in the garden with him. Three times Jesus bowed before God the Father and said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What was God's will? God's will was for Jesus to die on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer takes us back to the psalmist in Psalm chapter 40 in about verses 6 through 8. And he said, in the volume or in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I come, O Lord, to do your will, O God. Jesus came to do the will of Almighty God. That's why he came to earth. So, the wisdom of God, and then finally, the will of God. What is the will of God? When, when we talk about Scripture, when we talk about this book called the Bible, what's the overriding theme of this book? It's redemption. God is about redeeming his family. Did you know that we are the creation of Almighty God? We are the crown of God's creation. Look at the animal world, the plant kingdom. Look at all of the things that God has created, the universe as a whole. We are the crown of God's creation. We are the only beings that God sent His Son to die for. So having said that, go back again and look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, here's what Peter said. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now we have said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fundamental to the Christian religion. Take it away. 
And we're, we're without hope. We're lost. That's what Paul would say. That's the argument he makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness based on Romans chapter 1 verse 4. But what is God's eternal will? That you and I would step back and recognize all of the great things that, that has been done on our behalf. God the Father would have us read and search and study this book. And having read and researched and studied and meditated on this book, he would have us come to a saving faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 34 said, Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. God wants us to know his will. What is his will? That I might be saved. The only way I can be saved is to come to an understanding of this redemptive plan. God wants me to develop faith. Listen again to what he said. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When I stand in awe of this redemptive plan, what it ought to do is serve as a catalyst so that I would obey the gospel and live a faithful life until death. Make no mistake about it, God is not interested in any person, any person being lost. God wants us saved. God is in the saving business. The Hebrew writer asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Salvation is great. God has made it great because he's the architect of it. Christ has made it great because he's the agent whereby this plan has been consummated. And God wants us to be saved. That's why Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 4 that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Truth and truth alone will set us free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We preach, we teach, we plead, and we persuade. Why is that? Because we understand that God's redemptive plan is open to all. God wants you to be saved. Here's the question. Are you going to do what God would have you to do in order to be saved? If Jesus said it, that ought to settle it. Here's what Jesus said. Except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. If you die in your sins, Jesus said, where I am, there you cannot come. Jesus said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. That's what the Son of God said. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. This redemptive plan is open to all. The gospel is for all. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. That's the song that we sing, and it is so true. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could we encourage you to come to Christ? 
If you're here tonight and you are not faithful to his cause, could we plead with you, come home? Why not, why not live a faithful life and one day enjoy eternal life with Almighty God in heaven? If there's any way that we could help you tonight, would you come as we stand and sing?